Welcome to Arena Athletes, your home for MTG Arena Strategy. Step inside the digital arena with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Brought to you by Face to Face Games. You're listening to Arena Athletes number 122, Practice Makes Permanent. My name is David Sville. I have Travis Sowers on the line with me again this week. How are you, sir? I'm doing excellent, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm refreshed from my vacation. Oh, yeah. How was the trip? Nice. Uh, it was really good. It always is. Like, hanging out with my parents is always a good time. Uh, had a bit of an adventure picking up my daughter from the airport. She missed her original flight. Um, not her fault. And we'll just leave it at that. Uh, that was an adventure. And then... Um, we just uh, kind of had a nice little road trip home, kind of moseyed back, and uh, it was real good. The awkward thing is, though, is that uh, Rebecca played the podcast for my parents, and they didn't understand anything about what I was talking about, huh. and uh, so I had to explain to them what the podcast was, and yada, 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 and, you know, oh, do you make any money off this? And I'm like, very little, don't worry about it, and she, so you're a professional podcaster. I'm like... I mean, you are. They're not I, wrong. I mean, technically... Um, so that was a little awkward, but it was, no, it was cool. My, my parents are great people. So they, they understand and support my endeavors and my hobbies. So it was good. That's awesome. I'm how was your, I was gonna say, how's your week on stream? Uh, stream went really well, got in a lot of magic. Uh, we had a trip as well, um, which involved a flight where we had to get up at three o'clock in the morning. That part I didn't particularly care for, uh, but the trip was fun and we had a good time. Um, stream has been going well. Um, been playing a lot of standard which I know we're going to get into, and I'm looking at potentially getting back into draft, which I'm going to need you to help me with. I lasted uh, longer than you said I would. I hate to say I told you so. I mean, so I won't. you did, but you said it would be a week, and I think it's been a month. That's, that's fair. Your resistance to it was great, which is a shame because M20 has been a lot of fun. I've seen people on Twitter saying it's the best draft format they've ever played. Mm, it's the best corset draft I've ever played. I wouldn't say it's the best draft format okay fair enough hey i like corsets you're the one that doesn't like corsets that's why i was impressed like i'm actually going to another paper draft tomorrow i've done like one a week for pretty much as long as the set's been out and i've been in town okay which is pretty impressive for me so yeah it's been a lot of fun anyway let's let's get on i've got i actually played standard the last you know week when i was home not on vacation um so want to talk about that a bit uh we're gonna talk i want to talk about practicing because uh, i kind of had a bit of a revelation as i was kind of going through and practicing this esper deck uh spoiler alert i sucked with it at the start and then um you want to talk about m20 limited but first we think we got to talk about the patreon yes we do need to talk about the patreon if you are enjoying the podcast and you can afford to support it please stop by patreon.com slash arena underscore athletes that will let you see the Patreon. You can subscribe there. Um, you can contribute as much as you want or as little as you want. Uh, it's set up to do like per episode. We usually do for a month. So toss in a buck if you can. If you can't, that's okay. I've been in positions in my life where, you know, four bucks a month was actually a lot of money. So I can certainly understand that. I've also been in positions where it wasn't. So if you dig what we do and you'd like to support it, it would be much appreciated. The Patreons plus David's Twitch subscribers just bought him an awesome new microphone, which he is using right now. So like that's where this money is going is to like upgrade the equipment that we're using and and pay us for this time that we're spending doing this every week. So we'd love to have your support if you can. Uh, if you do, there's some rewards in it for you. You can read about those there. Um and that's basically it. Go check out the Patreon. If you dig it, support it. If you are not able to, uh, tell a friend. I fully support the telling of a friend. So more listeners is is great for everybody. So uh, thank you for that, Travis. All right. Let's jump into standard. So you cast the Fandom Legends event yesterday, today being Friday. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw some some cool decks, actually mostly just vampire decks. Um, break us down the break down the metagame for us and kind of tell us how that went in in the top eight and who came out on top. So the the part that I cast was actually the Swiss, and I got some information there about that for you that we'll drop first. And that metagame is kind of what I'm mostly interested in to see like sort of where things came from. We had a lot of vampire decks. There were one, two, three, four, five, six that were registered. 
uh, and at least three of them made the top eight. So I had dismissed this deck as something that I thought needed a, a ridiculously good draw to be able to win. Uh, and I still think that that's sort of part of it, but like that goes for just about every aggro deck. Uh, one of the things you had mentioned when we were doing the mic check was that sometimes a deck's just not for you. And I think that's where I ended up on Vampires. I think this is a legitimate deck, but it's not one that I enjoyed playing. So I kind of had to pass on that one. But after watching people like Reed Duke and MTG Nerd Girl had a really good showing with this as well, like I, I think there's actually something there. One of the other breakout decks that I really hadn't seen much interaction with before was a Rakdos Aristocrats deck that Ashley brought. Um, I didn't quite recognize the interaction with Mayhem Devil and Scapeshift until I saw it happen. And that's when I was like, hey, wait a minute. That's really not good for the Scapeshift player. So she brought this deck that's basically... Um, it's playing four Knight of the Ebon Legion, four Dreadhorde Butcher, three Rick's Mighty Re Reveler, Judith Mayhem Devil, the, the things you'd expect. It's also playing Spawn of Mayhem, Bantu, and Rekindling Phoenix. Now, Phoenix was an interesting metagame choice now because think about, like, as long as Phoenix has been in the format, people have mostly been playing Vraska's Contempt, and those have largely disappeared. Decks just aren't playing those anymore, which means they're going to have to two-for-one themselves to deal with the Phoenix. Uh, there were also some interesting interactions with Chandra Acolyte of Flame and Mayhem Devil in that you have to sacrifice those tokens at the end of turn. Uh, so Judith pumps them, the, the spawn makes them do damage. So like there were a lot of interesting things going there, and I think that deck's probably worth a look. Um, maybe it could use some tweaking. I'm not sure, but it, it certainly looked interesting. Um, Huey had a Demir control deck that I didn't think looked wonderful, and he didn't win any games with it. Uh, but maybe there's something there. Like, I don't think you should judge the entire worth of a deck based off of its performance in one tournament or one game. It's kind of not how that worked. Uh, and we saw the normal Scapeshift decks here, uh, Sultai variant, uh, traditional Scapeshift. And then we also saw a Sultai control deck that didn't particularly do very well, but it was looking to do things with like Cavalier of Gales, um, God Eternal Kefnet, Narset, the, the usual suspects. But I think the biggest deck out of all of this was the Blue Artifacts deck by Matt Nass. Because... I think it, it sent, like, ripples throughout the, the standard Twitterverse, I think. It really did. So, like, I was getting ready for this um, tournament, and I had streamed some the day before. And one of the reasons I decided to go back and do a little bit of Limited is, like, what got me the last time I qualified for that big standard tournament was I hadn't played any standard and I wasn't ready for it. I was like, I need to be ready for it. I need to be focused and playing standard and ready to participate in these events. And I realized while I was playing that, like, this is a stale standard. And I remember saying this on stream. There's no innovation. It's not like we're going to see a new deck in the fandom tournament today. Like, there's just nothing here. And the next tournament will be with a new set anyway. So... I was somewhat surprised to go in to cast the tournament, and usually I'll get prepared about 30 minutes before and sit down and look at the deck lists, and I looked, and I'm like, okay, I understand all of these, and I'm like, mono blue what? And I went and looked at it, and like, it literally took me 20 minutes of staring at this deck list to figure out what he was trying to do, and then seeing it in action and actually watching it happen kind of blew my mind. Yeah, it's crazy. I... I... I sat down, I looked at it in the on the MTG Goldfish kind of list of, of the deck lists, and he hadn't played a game on stream with it yet, or at least not one that I was watching, and I didn't understand it either until I saw it in action. So maybe maybe you can describe the deck, but the, the concept is, is that it works with, like, Psy to make a bunch of Thopters, you're playing a bunch of artifacts, but what's the interaction, the key interaction in, in this? Because obviously Matt Nass loves his uh, KCI combo from Modern, and this has got to be as close as you can get to that in, in Standard. It sure seems like it. So a, a big card for this deck is Manifold Key, which is colorless for an artifact. One and tap it, untap another artifact. Uh, it also has text, three tap, target creature can't be blocked this turn, but I never saw him use that. It's playing two Gilded Lotuses, which lets you net mana off of the Gilded Lotuses. It's also there to untap um, the Magistrate Scepter that is in the sideboard, uh, which is exactly where he wants it because you can't go unmoored ego it and get rid of it, uh, which is three, four tap, put a charge counter on it, tap, remove three charge counters, take an extra turn. So if he can get all of the keys out and the scepter with enough mana, which he can absolutely do, he's going to take infinite turns. How does he get it out of the sideboard? Karn, the great creator. 
Uh, so you can use Karn to go fetch from a toolbox of artifacts that you have in here. And another big piece of this was Mystic Forge. Uh, this is four. You can look at the top card of your library anytime. You may cast it if it's an artifact or a colorless non-land card. Tap, pay one life, exile the top card. This is Experimental Frenzy in this deck. Because even the other things that he's playing that aren't artifacts are Ugin and Karn. So the only hits that it can't get are Flood of Tears, which is another big thing for this deck because it basically is upheaval. Because you have all of this free mana for colorless stuff. Tap it all, play the Flood of Tears, bounce it all. You can put something back into play and then recast all of your mana rocks. Uh, Sigh and the Renowned Weaponsmith. So like when you fetch that out of the sideboard and then are able to play that that Mystic Forge, you can just basically go off and play your whole deck. The other interesting interaction, and believe me, there's more. I'm just covering the basics, is Ugin makes colorless spells too less to cast, meaning a lot of these things like the Guild Globe, if they're on top of your deck after you have the Mystic Forge in play, it's just zero, put an artifact into play, draw a card, dig deeper in your deck. What? That I, I didn't even realize how deep it was. Yeah, that's just the overview. Like, there's a lot more going on here. But, like, this deck is relatively cheap to craft in paper or magic online. If you're looking at doing it with wild cards, it's not crazy expensive, although some of these cards are going to rotate. But it might be worth looking to see if you actually have them. Because if you do, this deck looks like a blast to play. I have not done it yet, but it's my plan to start Monday and try this deck out because it just looks like too much fun. That sounds insane. I never even thought about Karn getting these cards from the sideboard because I saw a lot of these things in the sideboard and I'm like, there's a lot of one-ofs in there and it's kind of like, like, what's the point of this? When does when do these come in? Why aren't these main decks? And that's to- that totally makes sense. I didn't even think about that interaction. Yeah, and like I said, there's there's a lot more going on here, but watching him flood of tears and then recast, you know, two gilded lotuses, infinite power stone shards, a Karn and Ugin was pretty impressive. Um, once you have the infinite turns, you can kind of kill them however you want to. Uh, leftover Thopter tokens. Most of the time I saw him sacrificing the Thopters to draw cards just to try to find all the pieces and get this going. And I actually watched him win one game with a God Pharaoh statue. Like, he put that in play, and then just took infinite turns, and that was it. Matt Nass, ladies and gentlemen, that deck is insane. Now, he, he did he make the top eight with that deck? He did. Okay, so a reasonable record. I mean, obviously it's a small tournament, but you still have to have a, a winning record-ish or to make the, the top eight. Um, how far did he finish? I don't have that right in front of me. I can find okay. it, though. Okay, I don't... I was watching Reed Duke play a little bit of the top four, and I didn't. I don't think Matt Nass made the top four, so I'm going to assume that he lost in the top eight. But still, that's pretty sweet. And and just straight up innovation from from Matt Nass. He's kind of the king at these weird infinite combo decks. It seems like he finds them in almost any format. He does. And the last one he did, like he did a, a Tayshar deck with, that was an infinite combo. And like when we're watching, when we're commenting these events, we can see it from the streamer's perspective. And Matt was sitting there, like, staring at the board and really thinking while he played that and would get close to timing out, which meant I was nowhere near interested in that deck. Because if Matt Nass has to think to play it, I'm never going to be able to pull it off. Whereas we were watching him here, he's chit-chatting with his viewers, he's eating lunch, and he's just kind of clicking the buttons. And I'm like, okay, if Matt can do this in his sleep, then if I really pay attention, I might be able to pull it off. So I would never encourage anyone to play that Tishar deck. That's just too complicated. Whereas this one, I think you could actually pull this off. Okay. So keep an eye out for that on the ladder. We'll see if it actually makes a splash on the ladder. Um, and then I guess we'll just see. So what what are the kind of the... Uh, Achille, what's the Achilles heel of the deck, do you think? So looking through here, he did lose in the quarterfinals to Kanye. He was running a vampire's list. So I think like most combo decks are a little weak to aggro. I could believe that this one is too. And like a good draw from those vampires deck is not just like we're used to good draws from white weenie or good draws from mono white. A good draw from this deck is almost your dead. So like it could be a situation where he was just on the draw against vampires with a good hand and there's not much you can do about that. Right. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing you play it on your stream next week. Yeah, I'm going to take this one for a spin, and I'm not giving up on Esper either. Um, I don't think we've recorded since the season reset. 
I did make Mythic with this deck and got pretty darn close to the top 1,000 uh, and did that basically within four days of playing the deck. So I, I, I still think Esper's in a very good position, and I'm pretty darn comfortable playing it now. Like, I feel like I've got game in all of the matchups, although Vampires is exceptionally difficult. Uh, all of the other ones, like Scapeshift, almost feels like a buy now. I don't even care about that deck. Yeah, I had an epic game against Scapeshift the other day um, where I think... We almost, I think I almost went to time. I won like a 20-minute game, game one. I thought it was game two, and I thought it was winning the match. I wasn't really paying attention to that, um, where I basically had... I lost all my win conditions except Oath of Kaya, and I had to loop it. <laughs> and then... Uh, oh, no, sorry. That was a game against Unmored Ego. I lied again. Uh, the, the, the escape shift one was basically me locking out my opponent twice with Teferi, and my win con was looping Oath of Kaya because of that. But, I mean, that's easy at that point once you've locked your opponent out. But they made me play it out for, like, 25 minutes of my 30-minute clock. And it was it was a, a bit of a nightmare on my end. But that's that's Esper. That's win con less Esper for you, right? Yep. Okay. So, you're having success with the deck. I am slowly coming around. I'm actually on, like, a five-game winning streak or something like that. So, I'm, I'm moving up. Okay. But for, for about a week, off and on playing... I was stuck at the bottom of gold four. I could not get off the bottom of gold four. And I was trying to figure out, I was getting frustrated with the deck. I was trying to figure out what I was doing wrong. And I kind of came to the realization, like there, there's a couple of things I, I learned here. One is it, it can be difficult to learn how to play a new deck or, or play a new new style if you're not used to it. So I am not normally a control player. Like in, if I play constructed, I don't usually play control. I usually play some kind of mid range, some kind of creature based uh, deck. I don't usually play combo either. That's kind of my my jam, right? Either aggressive or mid-range creature base because I come from limited. Yeah. So it's natural for me. So I, I had to learn how to play a new style. And in doing so, I, I was also trying to... I was also, also figuring out that maybe I wasn't practicing correctly. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about today is... Like, if you're looking to learn a new style or learn a new deck... And you're kind of just playing it and going through the motions and not really paying attention or like maybe you're streaming it and you're chit-chatting with your stream and things like that. Like there is a correct way to practice and there's an incorrect way to practice. So, uh, you know, I, I played a lot of sports. I played a lot of sports when I was young. You know, I play Ultimate Frisbee right now. And when I'm practicing with my team either before a game or if I'm practicing with like a traveling team or something like that, there are basically two types of people that warm up or that practice. There's the people that mess around. And they don't really take it seriously, and they're kind of just out there throwing a disc, who cares, not really paying attention, talking with their buddies, whatever. And there's the people that, like, practice as if they were in a game situation. So they practice as if it's a game, they, they take it seriously, they go through the reps, they they throw perfect, they, they catch perfect. If they drop something, you know, they, you know, feel bad about it, they try to correct that for the next play. So, and what I find is, is that the, the latter people often do better in the game. They're paying more attention. They're improving their skills. Whereas the former, they're kind of just out warming up and they're just getting their muscles loose and they're not really doing anything else to sharpen their skills. So when I was practicing the Esper deck, when I was playing it, I'm not playing it on stream, but like I would find myself in some matchups, like I'm losing, I don't care. I'm just not going to pay attention. I'm just going to randomly click my cards. And then when I was winning, it was the same thing. It was like, I'm just going to randomly click my cards. Like it doesn't matter what I play. And I had to correct that and come to the realization that like if I'm practicing this deck and I want to get better with this deck, I have to pay attention. I have to take each line seriously, each play seriously, and really focus on on those reps and learning and sharpening my skills as opposed to just going through the motions. And I found that really difficult to do because when you're playing limited, you know, all your decks are different. You don't really you're learning more of the limited format as a as a holistic thing instead of each individual deck. Whereas this deck, you have to be very focused on the interactions and things like that. And I found distractions really took away from my ability to learn. So what I started to do is I started to sit down and take each game seriously, each match seriously. It didn't matter where I was. I'm playing to win. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go through all these interactions. I'm going to go through all the different lines behind, ahead. It doesn't matter. And start to really think about my decisions. And I'm going to practice properly. I'm going to practice perfect because perfect practice makes perfect. And if you're just going through the motions, you're not going to get anywhere. And it was interesting to me that I finally put that together from like real life sports to like digital card game. And, you know, something really clicked for me. And I think my results have improved with the deck since then because I've been taking it seriously. I'm making notes on lines. I'm making sideboard notes, mm -hmm. which is something like I'm not going out and just finding a sideboard. I am trying to make sideboard decisions 
seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. And then after a few reps, then I go and find a sideboard guide. And I'm like, okay, how am I supposed to sideboard in this matchup? Where's my differences? Like, where did I make a mistake? And then commit that to memory as opposed to just reading a sideboard guide every time I need to sideboard. So I find that like a combination of those things are really helping me absorb this deck as opposed to like just playing this deck. And I, th- I think that was key for me in, in finally coming around, at least what I think I'm on a winning streak here, but I'm starting to turn like my 20% win rate into, you know, I'm try- starting to bring that above water. Like I'm above 50% now with the deck since I started playing it. So, yeah. And you know, that kind of reminds me of something that we saw during the tournament. Uh, I forget which match we were watching. Actually, I think it was Brian Gottlieb's match. Uh, somebody in chat was like, why is he taking so long? He was playing a Jeskai Walker's deck. He made top eight with it. Um, and it, it was a pretty complicated deck with some different lines about like with opt, do I draw a card here? Do I play the planeswalker? How do I activate this? And I recognize that like, if you watch streamers while they're playing on the ladder, most of them are grinding the ladder, but they're not particular. And as someone who's been grinding the ladder lately, I can tell you this is true. I'm not particularly invested in the outcome of one game. If I am, well, then I'm going to tilt myself off. So I'm having a good time. I'm talking to chat. We're playing the cards. I've learned some of the lines, like Davis said, but I'm not super hyper-focused on every single one of them at that moment. Whereas in a tournament play, when the game means that much to you, like take your time and figure out those lines and think all the way through them. And that's what I had to do when I first started playing this deck. So I found myself now, there's things that I can do sort of by memory and know which removal spell to use on which creature because I know what else is in my opponent's deck. Whereas like before, it's like, do I use the cast down or the mortify? Like I've got three mana, maybe I want to use the mortify. Well, not in this matchup because there is actually an enchantment that I care about and I'd rather save the mortify. Like things like that, I've already learned, right? But I think you really do have to focus and think about those decisions and see what gets you. And I, I honestly think those times where you're winning or when you're losing are the ones where you have the biggest opportunity to learn, right? Like if you're losing by a lot, think of like, go through your deck list and think of what could I get to get out of this and what sequence of draws would work for me? Because I've had situations where I'm like, okay, the only way I can survive is I have to play the Narset, hit a Wrath, and then next turn draw the second Black Source to be able to cast it. And like knowing that that's my line leaves me a way to go through and find an out to a board state. Uh, So yeah, I would encourage you as you're doing your practice, don't just sit down and play a new deck and randomly click the cards and kind of wonder what happens. Think through all of the lines and spend your time doing that. And it it certainly is an adjustment when you start a new play, a a deck that's outside of your play style. Because prior to playing this, I really hadn't played a lot of control decks either. I'd played against them. But I'd kind of gone with the, you know, I'm going to play an aggro deck or I'm going to play a mid-range deck because it feels most like limited. I think that's why Jund always appealed to me in Modern is it felt like a limited deck. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, though. Like, you sit down and you, you play the deck for the first time and it's like, man, I got this, I understand this, I understand this. And then you play like three games with it and you're like, I don't understand this. It, it's kind of like your level of confidence starts high maybe you win your first game or something like that you're like man i got this of course like this is easy you lose a couple and you're like ah that was bad luck like i'll i'll be better in the next one and then all of a sudden you kind of realize you hit this valley and you're like i don't know anything about this deck and it's way more complicated than what i thought and i think that's why like learning an aggro deck for me at least is so easy because like i play those things in limited i play creature based limited so it's uh it was really interesting to me to kind of go through those phases and now i'm kind of in that like you know, I'm climbing that mountain again and I'm feeling real good about myself. So we're going to see when I hit that next one where maybe I get to that next level, get to plat or something like that. Um, where I start to play a little more focused or decks or harder players or something like that. You know, I, this has triggered kind of two thoughts for me. Um, and I want to give an example of practicing wrong, going the wrong way and something that happened to me where that happened. Um, before I do that, I also want to mention this idea of skill transference. So like the idea is like those decks play like limited decks, which is where you've come from. So you would feel more comfortable with aggro decks or mid-range decks. It's not that they're necessarily easier. I can imagine somebody that plays a blue-white control deck in modern, but really hasn't played much standard, would walk into this Esper deck and go, okay, cool, this makes sense. 
But if you handed them mono red burn, like some of the lines might not be quite as intuitive to them. And I've found this in myself when I play other games. Like I tried playing PUBG for a long time and I was terrible at it. Like as soon as I started playing, I just get shot in the head and like it was kind of game over, man. And then I've tried playing other draft games like um, Hearthstone's Arena or I've been playing Underlords lately. And like there's some skill transference there. So I can kind of walk into those games and sort of know what I'm doing. So I think that's a big thing here is maybe look at where you're coming from if you're looking to get into standard and maybe choose a deck that's going to have some of that skill transference. And once you've played the format some, I think it's a big deal to branch out. Like, I really feel like I have a firmer grasp of standard now that I've spent a week playing Scapeshift and a week playing Esper Walkers or Esper Control, whatever you want to play it, call it. I, I feel like I, I understand standard better than a lot of people. Maybe not Matt and Ass, but a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And then another example, like, this is something that actually got me. A long, I haven't played it in a long time, but I used to play Mandolin. I was self-taught. My dad bought a mandolin because I was kind of interested in guitars, but I was a little kid and I couldn't really hold the guitar because I was too little. And I taught myself how to play a bunch of songs on the mandolin, but as, and I was just doing it by ear. But as I was learning to play, I rested the neck of the instrument. If you don't know what a mandolin is, think about a small guitar. I rested the neck of the instrument between my thumb and pointer finger on my left hand right on the fretboard because that just seemed like a natural place to hold it. And then later, as I was trying to get better, and I I was actually pretty good as a kid, but as I tried to get better, I realized that there were notes that I couldn't play because I I had learned how to play holding the instrument wrong. You can't cradle it like that. You have to be able to basically grip it with your thumb and use like uh, a strap to hold the instrument upright, not to be doing it with your hand because you just can't move your, your hand fast enough down the fretboard to be able to hit all those notes. And it was so difficult for me to transition after I'd been playing for years, cradling it that way to just, just adjusting the grip of my left hand. I went from being able to impress all the family members to sound like I'd just started playing the instrument. And it took a long time to relearn that. Whereas I feel like if I'd started out knowing how to do that correctly or taken the time to figure that out or just asked somebody that played like anybody that actually plays, you know, guitar, banjo, whatever would know that's not how you're supposed to grip it. And that's kind of a similar thing here. If you start off playing these things the wrong way, you may just think, well, this deck sucks. And that may frankly be what happened to me with those vampire stacks. It's entirely possible I was keeping hands that aren't keepable. Like aggro strategies need to mulligan more than control strategies because they've got to have a good start. So like as you're starting to do these practicing, make sure that you're talking to people and finding out like, is this a good hand? Is this a keepable hand? You should be in the arena athletes discord or the discord for my stream, for example, putting up pictures of opening hands. Would you keep this with Esper Control? Would you keep this with Orzhov Vampires? And get opinions of a lot of people to make sure that you're not holding the mandolin wrong and have to relearn it four years later. It's funny you say that because I do have some questions. So I'm going to hit you with some hard-hitting questions about Esper Control. It's not really hard-hitting, but this kind of does segue into it where one of the questions that I have is about mulligans. Okay. So what are do you have any examples of maybe some unintuitive hands like I would look at and I should be mulliganing, but I'm not? So for example, like two landers with with a bunch of three drops into fairies and narsets and things like that or do i keep a hand that's you know three land uh a teferi a removal spell a command the dread horde and uh maybe a, a, a five drop teferi or something like that so like are there like unintuitive or there are there hands that you think that most people would stumble on mulliganing? Like, do you have like a rule of thumb on things like that? A good rule of thumb for me is if I'm on the play, I'm not keeping a two lander unless it has thought erasure and the mana to cast it because that thought erasure will help me find the next land. And if I can cast thought erasure, I'm close to being able to cast Narset, which will solve a lot of problems for me. Nearly any three lander with Teferi, uh, three mana Teferi, is worth keeping because if you have to, you can cycle through it to hit your next land drop. Um, on the draw, I'm a little more inclined to like gamble on two land hands, but it needs to have some action. At the very least, a uh, cast down. 
once you know the matchup, like then mulliganing becomes much, I guess, much more simple in a way. Like there's hands mm-hmm. where like I've kept plenty of hands that were five lands, uh, five mana to fairy and a mortify, for example. Like that's a fine hand to keep, you know, before you know what your opponent's playing. But if I know I'm playing against vampires and I'm on the draw, that's going right back. Like that's just not going to work. I need to have a wrath or um, cry of the carnarium or something against that deck in my opener. But like in the blind, the hand I'm most happy to keep is one with five lands and two spells. Okay. Yeah, and I think that was part of my problem originally is that I wasn't thinking about those mulligans, and that where that's where that perfect practice comes from, where it's like I I sit now and I think for 30 seconds about my mulligan before I, I t- unless it's an obvious keep. But even then, I, I really think about some obvious keeps because they're not necessarily obvious to me. I think um, I think it's actually worth taking a moment to discuss a key difference of this deck and other control decks that we've seen in the past and why that land count is so important, why I'm so happy to see five lands. Control decks of the past were casting spells like Chemist's Insight or something to get you raw card draw. It's not been that uncommon for control decks to play straight up divination or think twice or something that just lets you cycle through and draw cards. Our card draw in this deck can't draw lands, which is one of the reasons the mana base is so important for it that it's able to cast Narset because your card draw is going to deny your opponent's card draw and find you spells, which is cool, but that means you have to prioritize openers with heavy land counts. Uh, so, like, that's why I'm so scared of two landers with this. Um, the the thought erasure is a bit of a cheat because I can, you know, get that scry and maybe find the, the third land faster. But, like, there's sometimes where I'll have a hand that's, like, mana that can cast Narset. Maybe it's two Teferi Hero of Dominarias and a Command the Dread Horde. And that may have to go back because Narset's not going to draw me into lands. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other question that I had, and this is again, this is like a, you know, rule of thumb or or, or what do you consider when you're making this decision? But I found myself exposing uh, three drop to fairy to, you know, two creatures on board, bounce one and just accept the fact that the fairy is dying to the other one. So basically cycling it and, and building a little bit of tempo. Is that a common play or is that something that I should be reconsidering? It depends on the deck. Uh, if I'm against Feather, for example, I am going to try to keep that Teferi alive at all costs because it basically mm-hmm. turns off the entirety of their deck. If you're playing against Simic Flash, um, you want to keep that Teferi alive. If you happen to be playing against Drakes, you want to keep that Teferi alive. Now, if I'm playing against Vampires, yeah, there's two creatures attacking me. For the love of God, just bounce one and buy me some time. If I can make it bounce a creature, draw a card, gain two life, I'm thrilled with that exchange. In many cases, I will do that with Narset if I have to, but by the same token, there's some matchups where Narset is much more valuable. Ironically, against Vampires, I'm going to take some out, but if I can ever get the game stabilized, Narset becomes very important to me because one of the ways they can get out of it is with a Champion of Dusk and draw two or three cards and then start redeploying. Uh, similarly, against Scapeshift, if I've got the Scapeshift, the zombies handled, and I'm not worried about that, they can get back into the game with a Giant Crisis. So just having Narset kind of chilling out there works for me. If you notice your opponent going through extraordinary hoops to try to kill one of your three mana planeswalkers, it's probably worth jumping through some hoops to keep it alive because they've probably got one of the cards that they can't cast because you have it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. So like value it in the matchup. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I've settled on. Um, and, and where I learned that was turn three, I have the option to play Narset or Teferi. And that kind of clicked into me, like, aha, now I know, like, based on this decision, which one is more valuable in the matchup. So when I'm trying to decide if I want to protect a fairy, or if I want to just get value and and tempo and just kind of cycle it, like, that, I think back to, like, okay, if I had Narset or Teferi here, which one am I playing on this board? Which one do I care more about? And that kind of helps me think about that. And that's a decision that I've run into a lot, too, is, like, you know, I have the option to play turn three, or Narset, turn three to fairy, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Because they both kind of a little bit do the same thing like maybe i'll need to hit a land drop so i'm going to play teferi instead of narset but like a lot of the time you know narset's just going to go find me a wrath and i'm going to wipe the board and narset's gone no big deal or teferi's going to go to bounce a creature and then live a turn hopefully and then i'll you know find an answer for the creature that they played so i I find that decision point interesting and there's a lot of other decision points too like 
Do I search for his Kanta or do I thought erasure on turn two if I have that decision? Or do I I'm trying to think of another one here? Do I uptick to Teferi instead of down ticking Teferi so I can play something at instant speed or something like that? Like there's all sorts of these little decision points and it's really death by a thousand cuts I find sometimes. Like sometimes there's difficult matchups to play. And until you have experience with those lines, which is where that practice comes in, like you're going to agonize over some of these decisions if you're taking them seriously and it can be actually quite like mentally fatiguing, I find. It's it's worth thinking about the situations. Like in most cases, I would thought erasure on turn two instead of playing the search for Ascanta. But if I get in the mirror and I'm on the play, I'm getting that search for Ascanta out of my hand as fast as I possibly can. Uh, because if they don't have a duress yet, there's a chance that they could draw one because they've sided it in. And I certainly don't want mine getting thought erasured. And I learned that by practice. I was playing the mirror. I had a thought erasure in hand. I'm like, okay, I should probably do this first, build up some equity in the graveyard. I thought erasure them and see they have two thought erasures. And I'm like, oh God, they're going to take my search for Ascanta and I can't win because that's one of the most important cards in the mirror. Like after the Teferis have all resolved and butted heads, this is what allows you to find more planeswalkers, more ways to interact. Uh, so I lost that game because I played the wrong card on turn two. And in mirror matches, I haven't done that again when that decision has come up. Like, I've remembered that. Like, so it's knowing what's more important. Whereas if I'm up against a deck that can't interact with it at all, like, let's say it's vampires. Like, obviously, I'm firing off the thought erasure because I want to, like, know what I'm up against, know what cards I need to be prepared for. If, you know, for some reason they've got a Sorin, I need to just grab that out of their hand because it's incredibly difficult to answer or even worse, a Gideon. Whereas the thought, the the search, we can do that later. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. This Man, I could pick your brain for, like, hours on this one or, like, a professional Esper player, like, somebody that has played it at the you know, in the fandom events or things like that. Like there's so much complexity to this, but it, it again, it, it's, it goes back to that talk that we had before about aggro versus control and in control, you might be making 20 decisions that all, you know, they matter, but they don't matter as much mm-hmm. in, in the individual. Whereas your burn deck, you might make one or two decisions and that's absolutely critical. And if you fail on one of those, you're going to lose the game. Whereas control has this ability to like catch up if you make a mistake but I find it really easy to compound my mistakes. And that's something else that I need to pay attention to is that there's so many decisions that all seem so insignificant at the time, but then you add them all up. And at the end of the game, you have no cards in hand and your opponent has seven and you're like, where did I go wrong? Like this should not be happening. And you have to, it's hard to kind of backtrack and find those mistakes. So it's interesting to, to hear you talk about these lines. Cause I'm like, yep, I've been there. I had to learn that the hard way. Um, and I think it's really cool. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your insight into that. I'm sure I'll have more questions off podcast and off stream uh, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to talk about it. Now, uh, would you mind returning the favor? I can try. Okay. So apparently there's this new core set out. Accurate. Right. You're coming. Yeah. You haven't played limited at all. I guess you played like a handful of sealed games. That's it. And I sort of remember some of the cards. I did the set review with Ethan. So I've at least read all of these cards. I've looked at all of these cards, but I have not played a game. I have not watched a game. I have no idea what's good in this format. I'm sure there's some cards that the bots will let you get that they shouldn't. Like I, I, I know nothing. What's, what's the best deck in the format? What should I be looking out for? Please teach me senpai. Okay, I will teach you to the best of my experience, but I haven't drafted nearly as much as, like, say, the people at Lords Limited and things like that, you know, Ben Stark. Um, but I can tell you from experience and from consuming other people's content that um, kind of the the nutty deck that's going around that everybody seems to be drafting or forcing, it seems like the bots don't really prioritize, is the uh, blue whatever Weaponsmith deck. Okay. So weaponsmith is the type of card that i think you look at in a set review without really playing the format and you don't you know you do blue and then you come to the artifacts later um and you kind of dismiss it right like i think when we had weaponsmith originally the bow and the vial weren't in the same format as the weaponsmith i can't remember if it was maybe just the bow no it it was the bridge because the bow was in cons then you had this in fate reforged and then in dragons of tarkir you had the vial Okay, great. So, but you never had both in the same draft format, whereas you have it here, and that seems to amp up the power level. So, the Weaponsmith getting bows is probably the most common interaction that is just nutty. Like, if you have two or more bows, 
and a weaponsmith to go find them and, and activate them and equip them and play them, you are wiping out most of the creatures on your opponent's side of the battlefield quite easily. Like if you're playing blue, white, let's say, and you're loading up on a bunch of flyers, you just load these bows on your Cloudkin Seer and nuke your opponent's X2s every single time. It's cheap, it's easy, it's repeatable, it's great. And and the thing is, is that the bots don't seem to be taking Weaponsmith highly, and the bows being at common and the vials being at common should be really easy to pick up. That's kind of the play pattern that I've seen online. I haven't drafted a ton on Arena, but in paper, that seems to get broken up quite a bit. Like, people seem to have picked that up on my in my draft group, so it's not as open. But on online, on Arena, you should be able to do that a lot. How many bows do I want? How many vials do I want? And I assume as many weaponsmiths as I can get, which is not very many. Yeah, you'll probably end up with two weaponsmiths if you're lucky. Um, I haven't really had the opportunity to draft the deck, but I've seen people play as many as, like, three or four bows. Wow, okay. I was thinking you were going to say two. No, there was a clip, I think, I want, it was on Reddit, and I want to say it was Deathsea that did it, that had an opening hand with a skeleton and, and like, four bows, and then top decked a fifth bow, <laughs> and 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 absolutely rolled his opponent. It was nuts. It was, like, turn one skeleton, turn two bow, turn three bow, equip, equip, you know, like, and it was just, like, every turn, their opponent played, like, the X1 or the X2 or the X3 and basically played on a curve. <laughs> he just nuked and all of them just, with his damn skeleton. Just kept playing a bow and equipping it, play bow, equip it, and it was like one-upping your opponent every single time, and it was crazy. And, like, that's the extreme. But I think you want a minimum of two, and this is just speculation. Like, this is... I'm, somebody else out there could tell you better, but I think if you're not playing with two, you're not doing it right. Like, if you're doing it with one, it's probably not worth it. And the vials are kind of there because the vials and bows combo as almost unconditional removal. So your opponent, your opponent plays a 4-4, you have two bows and a vial. They don't have a 4-4. And, and a weaponsmith and spin. Yeah. They don't have a 4-4 anymore, right? You're, you're trading your vial for their 4-4, and they can't do anything about it. Um, and weaponsmith is basically like a soul ring in this deck. Okay. Like, the, you can also load up on other artifacts. So things like pattern matchers, stone, or uh, I think there's stone golems, the 4-4, the four four, not stone golem. Um, there's a meteor golem, for example there's a meteor golem, but there's the four, four for five that you can play, which is basically like a four, four on turn three. Sometimes um, there's the, the Raptor, which kind of plays really well with the bows too. Like the, the two, one flying first strike. That's an artifact. Um, there's just all these little interactions in, in the artifact line that you can do. And if you can double up on weaponsmith, double up on vile, double up on bow, you're probably doing real good. All right. So I presume if I'm playing best of ones, I should main deck disenchant. I don't even know if that does anything. Like, you're going to get rid of one bow and your opponent just has two more? Like, huh. I, I think you're probably better off of just, like, winning the game faster, I would say. Okay. So, okay, so that's a deck. What else is out there? Um, the the one that I've seen drafted that I haven't had an opportunity, but I really want to, um, I had it, it's beaten me a couple of times in paper drafts, is this black-green recursion deck that is loading up on card advantage through Moldervine, Moldervine Reclamation or Season of Growth. So Season of Growth is one and a green for the enchantment. Um, whenever you play a creature, you get to scry. And whenever you play a spell that targets one of your creatures, draw a card. Okay. Um, so you can just get, like, so much value just off playing creatures. That's a card you might think to yourself, like, this is really slow. Like, I don't have enough self-target effects. Well, you're going to be playing Rabbit Bites. You might play the the one and a green plus three plus three. Um, you might play Blade Brand, things like that. Blade Brand is a card you want to be playing, too, quite a bit. Especially in this deck. Um, but you can just get so much value just off the scry, drawing a bunch of cards, hopefully. Um, and it turns kind of every creature to draw half a card with the scry, I would say, with the potential to draw more. So there's just lots of things you can do with that. Um, sanitarium skeletons, I think, are, are really good in this format because of this grindy. You have things like bone splinters, which in the past you might say, like, I don't want to play bone splinters, it sucks. In this format, with cards like... Um, uh, the skeleton, uh, loaming shaman to recur your stuff. Like, there's just so much you can do with these with these skeletons and bone splinters and things like that. So you're getting all of this incremental value. The thing that I find about this format so far in my limited experience is that enter the battlefield effects like are so good because of some of the remo- like the removal in white and the removal in blue being enchantment based is that you've got your value off a lot of your cards already. And your opponent puts a pacifism on, and it's like, great, like, I got a card and a half of value, you spent a card on this, and then I can sacrifice this to Bone Splinters later, and it's no big deal. So, you, you kind of got to think, like, you got to think long game in this black-green deck. Okay. 
And then you have Moldervine Reclamation, which is just incredible value. This is a card you might think to yourself, it's five mana for an enchantment, like do nothing, right? Every time a creature dies, you draw a card and gain a life. Gain a life or lose a life? I think it's gain, gain a life. Gain a life and it's creatures you control. Right. While well, you're playing Sanitarium Skeletons, great. Your opponent can't attack anymore because if they do, you just throw your skeleton in front of it, gain a life, draw a card, play the skeleton next turn. Like you're really playing the long game here. And you can and get away with this crap. Up. You can get away with this. I've lost in the finals in my paper draft twice to a deck like this. Granted, one, my opponent had the Black Cavalier and cast it three times. Okay, that's that would be pretty three good. Three times. Once from Gravedigger, once after shuffling it back in with Loaming Shaman. Okay. Insane value. So, like, and the thing is, is there's so many of these pieces that you can just pull in from other places that it's not like you're looking for a specific individual uncommon. If you don't get a Moldervine Reclamation, you can play Season of Growth. Or maybe two seasons of growth. You know, if you don't get Gravedigger, you can play Blood for Bones. If you don't get Murders, you can play Bone Splinters. Like, there's all of these, like, pieces that you can just piece together and cobble this monstrosity together that works basically the same no matter what you do. Okay. Um, so it's really cool. If you if you want to go in-depth on this one, like, I'm sure that there's VODs on Lord Tupperware's channel of him playing... Like a triple loaming shaman, moldervine reclamation, season of growth. Like basically, he's playing Dovin's Acuity without playing Dovin's Acuity. Yeah, I've seen him tweeting about this deck that this is basically all he wants to do. Uh, so I, I can yeah. certainly appreciate that. Um, is five color viable with stuff like Gift of Paradise, or is that just not even what we're looking for? I I haven't seen a reason to play more than three colors. Okay, like a, a lot of the decks that I see being played and that I've played myself are. Um, like two colors plus a splash or just straight two colors. Like I haven't seen anybody go super deep on Gifts of Paradise yet. So I just, I just don't think the value is there. Like I, th- I think the cards that are powerful in those colors are hard to cast to begin with, like the Cavaliers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the one, so you're just looking for a splash. Like you're not looking to touch all colors, although it is possible. Okay. But I think the, the lack of the dual lands kind of makes that difficult. And that's just pure speculation. I also haven't played a ton like, you know, I haven't done like a hundred drafts. I've done like maybe twenty. So hey, that's more than small I have. Sample size on that one. That's true. Now the other thing is, is people are going to tell you, and I'm sure that you've heard that is that white is the worst color. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the general consensus. But I, it's not a case of like Battle for Zendikar bad. It's a case of like you know you're playing passivism, which aren't great, and maybe some of the creatures aren't great compared to other colors. But if you get a lot of good white cards, then your white deck is going to be good, right? Like, period, right? So it's it's just kind of like, you know, it's a typical, well, I'm going to stay away from white because it sucks. No, it's probably the difference between, like, a 50% win rate and a 47% win rate. Okay. Like, on average. Like, we're not talking, like, 10% here. Just, if it's open, play it. But you're not, you're not highly picking passivism in a pack that has, you know, good cards in other colors, probably. Like, you might have to just rank your first picks in white just a little bit lower. So- and, like, for example, is, like... I actually, in a paper draft, I passed the White Cavalier for, I don't remember what it was now, Cloudkin Seer or Meteor Golem, because I'm like, there's a better chance that I'll play this than playing White and playing the Cavalier. And because it's hard to cast and you got to be heavy White, and it was it was a difficult decision. And in, I mean, in the end, it was the right one because I got cut off White anyway, so I wouldn't have got there. Um, but it was like, it, it was a super tough decision for me. It, it was probably wrong. But, like, at that point, that was probably, like, because I think white sucks, and I probably made a mistake there, but in the end, like, I ended up playing a card that I was guaranteed to play, I think. So maybe something like murder versus pacifism lean murder in this case. 100%. You think pacifism, you would take pacifism because it's splashable, I take murder because it's just the best. Okay. Like, and I, and I want to be black. So. Okay. Because I, I don't think you're splashing for pacifism, it's just not worth it with all the end of the battlefields effects. Okay. The, this is good information. I think I will be prepared for this. So we've got... Mono blue artifacts and best of one draft coming up on my stream soon. And I think that crash course has got me pretty stoked to try green black. Yeah. And also like the elemental decks are fun. Um, I drafted a mono red deck in paper, which was amazing. Um, I, I only lost again to that black green value deck where I just couldn't get through their life gain. Um, they're there. This set has a lot of really good commons and uncommons and I think that's what makes the decks the, the the format so cool is that if you don't open up bomb rares, you can still like kill their bomb rares with murders, and you're totally fine with that. If you do open your bomb rares, great, you get to play with super fun cards, and maybe you get to recur them in your in your black green deck. So there's just a lot of cool things you can do with this format, and um, I 
I regret not having enough time to play more, but here we are. I'm going to go paper draft tomorrow. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, well, cool. Next week, let's talk some about the draft format because I will hopefully have drafted some by then. I, I set this as a goal for myself. Once I hit Mythic and Constructed, then I can go draft again. So first I have to hit Mythic and Constructed, and then I can start drafting, but I'm not that far away from it. I'm at like, what is it? It's Platinum Diamond, so I guess I'm like almost through, I'm almost a Diamond. Okay, and that's just the hop, skip, and a jump for you with the Esper Control deck, it seems like. Awesome. I look forward to watching you play Limited, because that's my favorite thing to do when I watch you play, is watch you play Limited. Okay, cool. We'll be back into that. Awesome. I think that's it for me this week, unless you have anything else you want to talk about. No, I think we covered. All right, sweet. Want again, uh, thank our, our listeners uh, for hanging out with, with us again this week. Thanks to Face to Face Games for the support and the host. And where can they catch you streaming next week? You can find me at twitch.tv slash simulan. Uh, I'm on Twitter under the same name. And I'm looking at trying a schedule out to test next week where we do four hours of magic from eight until noon. Then I take a lunch break and exercise because I'm old and could probably use that and do administrative stuff and then come back from one to seven and stream whatever. That'll be the Thursday uh, fandom events on Thursday. It could be more magic. It could be Underlords. It could be Hello Kitty Island Adventure, uh, but it'll kind of give me a chance to to play some other games and still make sure I'm focused on delivering the magic content. So I'm going to try that next week and see how I like it. Awesome. And I am at uh, twitch.tv slash dcivilian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. I'm also on Twitter the same. Um, my summer schedule is almost up, so I'll be back to streaming hopefully regularly again. It's, I always say this, and I never do. Um, but, you know, life's too good right now to be on my computer 24-7. But, uh, no, I had a couple of really good streams in the last couple of weeks, so we'll be doing that again now that I have no vacation. Actually, that's a lie. I am going to GP Vegas. Dude, I hope you have a blast out there. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, so if any of our listeners out there are going to GP Vegas, like, hit me up. I'm going to be at the GP for at least two of the four days. Just I'm just playing strictly limited side events. There's a two-team-sealed trio events, like three-round events, that I'm hoping to get a team together for. I'm crossing my fingers that somebody's looking for a third that I can just sneak in on. Um, but that's going to be a ton of fun. I'm not going to main event but it'll be really cool anyway. Um, and if you don't, if you're not coming down to the GP and you're around Vegas anyway, maybe that week, um, hit me up. We'll go for a drink or something like that. It'll be super cool. Cool. And then you can follow us on Twitter at underscore or arena underscore athletes. Maybe I'll do some live tweeting or like live blogging there. We'll see. Data plans are expensive traveling to the United States, by the way, you guys got to get your stuff together down there. You could just move to the United States and stay here full time. I like my healthcare. I like my freedom. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll we'll talk about that off off stream. <laughs> All right, bud. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Adios.